Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. Today, we welcome Phil Pagola. Phil is the Global Head of Customer Success 360 at VMware. In this episode, we discover his incredible journey through multiple leadership roles within pre- and post-sales, through which he achieved huge impact on the Blade Logic story. We also discover why customer success has become so essential to the growth of subscription-based technology companies. This is his playbook. edition of the 33 CXOs, we discover the crucial role that the pre-sales organization played in what is regarded as the greatest success story in the history of software sales. When John McMahon reunited the team at BladeLogic, he had a clear vision to create a sales and pre-sales organization that was in absolute unison. The symbiotic and almost telepathic sales rhythm is the benchmark for best practice. The outcome is not only execution excellence, but a shift to a value mindset which transcends any shift in technology. The pre-sales team now take executive positions at some of the fastest, most disruptive technology companies in the world. What we discover is that John McMahon's vision has not only changed how we sell, it's changed what we sell. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Patrick Harrison. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's an absolute honour to be joined by Phil Pagola. Phil, welcome. Thanks, Simon. Good to be with you, Patrick. Fantastic to have you, Phil. Thanks so much for joining us. So in the way of an introduction, Phil Pagola is currently the Global Head of Customer Success 360 at VMware. Um, in what's been a truly amazing uh, career so far, um, Phil, we're actually going to spend quite a lot of time talking about your kind of most recent role, which is kind of VMware through the Cloud Health Inc. Uh, acquisition. But actually, if you could just take us right to the beginning of how you got into Blade Logic. If you can kind of take us through that journey, that'd be a great place for us to start. Sure, yeah, so, you know, I graduated from college and, you know, went to work for, you know, Anderson Consulting at the time, you know, Accenture, and, and was doing consulting work there. And at, at one point, you know, I said, you know, listen, we, we keep doing these same software implementations, there's gotta be a better way. So, you know, I made the decision to go work at a startup company at the time called Egg Rock Partners. Um, where you know some of the members of uh, the founding team at Blade Logic, you know, were working at the time, and I worked with them a little bit. Vance Loizel, VJ Minwani. Eventually, that company was acquired by a company called Breakaway Solutions, where David Ishiria was actually heading up the uh, the hosting uh, business, and so you know we joined up, you know, with Dave uh, at that point in time. Um, you know, the dot com bust hits, and you know. Like many companies, you know, we weren't doing too well financially. So, you know, Dave and VJ separately go off to be entrepreneurs and residents. 
uh, different venture capital firms. Um, I hung on, you know, for a little bit longer um, and actually worked at a company that, you know, acquired uh, the assets of breakaway solutions. And, and then what happened is uh, Blade Logic was founded in September of 2001. And uh, Blade Logic had signed up their first large customer sprint at the time. And uh, in about May of 2002 or April 2002, uh, Vance gave me a call and said, you know, hey, you know, we're starting up this company. We started up this company, Blade Logic. Uh, we've got our first customer. You know, we'd love for you to come in and help build up all of our customer operational processes, uh, professional services, customer support. Um, you know, are you uh, you interested in joining? Uh, so I went in. I uh, you know learned a little bit more about the company. It was pretty exciting. And then you know, VJ Menwani at the time, you know, was one of the founders. Uh, bought me an ice cream and gave me the hard sell and said, "You need to join this company." Uh, and the next thing I know, um, I'm the director of client services. You know, at, at Blade Logic. And so, you know, it's a bit of a exciting kind of story to see how everything came together. And obviously, you know, a lot of positive came out of joining Blade Logic. Fantastic. And but director of client services was that initially kind of professional services and support kind of encompassing both those those functions? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't want to oversell the role. I mean, at the time, you know, literally the support and professional services organization was myself and, and one other person, you know, David Miller, uh, you know, with with some support and help from a couple of uh, borrowed resources. And but but it, you know, it, it was truly a startup, right? I mean, yeah, we really had to think about everything kind of post sale in terms of how we were going to serve the customer. So uh, it, it must have obviously been a very interesting time. You, you were kind of very early on, you know, in, in, in that business to, to an extent. Um, and you took various roles within the business, right? So your, your role didn't stand still, obviously, true startup nature, but actually you took different roles. So just kind of talk us through what different roles you took and, and why you, I suppose you were appointed to, to take that responsibility on. Yeah, sure. So from when I joined to when we went public, it was just over five years. And I had, you know, four roles that varied in duration from anywhere from like 12 to 18 months. And so, you know, I, I joined as head of client services um, to build up, you know, a mature and scalable uh, professional services uh, and, you know, support business. Uh, we established that, but, but early on, what we found is it wasn't a high enough volume of support activity and you know consulting activity to keep me and the team really uh, engaged you know based on the impact that, that we could have so so we took a step back and we said well what's the biggest challenge you know we're having right now in the business um, and could we you know best use our skills have an impact in that area uh, and at the time it was just you know we had good mature customer processes um, we just needed more customers. <laughs> Um, so, uh, at the time, I took a role as uh, the director of sales engineering, and, and, and really, you know, my role was to help build up the, the sales engineering competency. Uh, you know, partnering closely, uh, you know, with the sales leadership. Um, you know, at the time, you know, there was sort of a transition that was happening. Uh, Steve Sterhan was coming in as you know the new uh, head of sales. Um, and so I, you know, primarily worked with, you know, Steve uh, and some of the members 
of the team that helped me on the client services side to basically get sales engineering off the ground, implement new processes, things like that. Fast forward a little bit, we actually saw a ton of success bringing on uh, new clients. Um, but then what we looked at is we're like, wait a minute, we just closed, you know, in one particular quarter, we closed, you know, six large enterprise customers that all needed to be implemented. Uh, <laughs> so I was basically at that point tapped on the shoulder to kind of go back and finish what I started, particularly on the professional services side, uh, but also there were transitions happening in support. But most of my focus at that point was implementing the large deals that I helped sell. Uh, so I worked primarily in professional services, you know, for a, a bit longer. Uh, but then what ended up happening is we said, well, what's the biggest problem that's impacting the success of our customers? And we really looked internally and we said, you know, we've got some product issues. Um, you know, basically the product that we had at the time wasn't really meeting the requirements and scale for the enterprise customers. And so I actually took a role at the, that time. Uh, as the senior director of product management. And so I was at that point accountable for the uh, the release of what you know really became you know, our flagship uh, you know blade logic offering uh, when you look at kind of the capabilities and differentiators that we were able to you know put into the product at that point in time. Um, you know did that for a little while, um, I think you know about 12 to 18 months and then uh, you know, we actually had some changes as it relates to kind of our engineering leadership at that point in time. And so that sort of created an opportunity to look at, you know, where can I have the biggest business? Uh, and at that point in time, David Achiria, the CEO, tapped me on the shoulder and he said, we are thinking about what does this company need to look like from a customer perspective for us to have a really successful IPO? Um, and he just laid it out clearly. He said, I want you to take an individual contributor role, every resource in the company is at your disposal. And I need two things. One, I need to make sure we've got, you know, a good reference customer base. Two, I need to make sure that we do not lose a customer to our primary competitor at the time, which was Opsware. <laughs> and three, we need a very large reference financial services customer uh, as part of our IPO roadshow. Um, and so in that latter sense, I was kind of brought back into sort of the sales engineering uh, because basically, you know, I was tasked with sort of leading the charge uh, from a sales engineering perspective um, at, you know, winning uh, our large financial services customer. Uh, and Bank of America was, you know, the company that we targeted and eventually, you know, we secured. And, you know, who knows to this day, I think they're probably the largest, you know, played logic customer, you know, ever they were for, you know, definitely a long period of time. And that, and that was a, you know, it took, that was a year long sales cycle involved partners, involved literally at one point in time, 80% of the sales engineering organization was, uh, you know, working on our trial at Bank of America. Um, and then eventually, you know, as we're going public, uh, I was then, you know, asked to solve, you know, what the next big customer problem was, which was really at the time customer support. And so I was the VP of customer support and we went public and eventually, you know, with the acquisition of BMC, at that time, I was uh, the VP of customer support. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's incredible. It seems as though you were kind of move, you know, very very strategically to tackle kind of big challenges or or, or very very strategic moves, almost like a, almost like a chess chess piece, engaging in the right kind of areas at the right time. 
But um, Blade Logic was obviously going through a massive transition in itself at the time, obviously with John McMahon and what if well, Steve Strachan initially and then James, uh, um, John McMahon being, um, being brought in. Um, what, what was the impact of those two particular sales leaders on Blade Logic as a total, but also what you then started to learn and, and therefore have to implement in, in the roles that you were taking on? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, so as Steve came in, that's really when we started to put mature sales process you know, in place. Right? You know, Steve uh, came from PTC, obviously, you know, had uh, worked, you know, under John and um, had implemented, you know, started to implement, you know, many of the methodologies, uh, sales methodologies uh, and practices that, you know, he was using at PTC. And also Steve taught many of us uh, really how to sell. Um, you know, I came into my role in sales engineering with no prior sales experience. If anything, I should tell people that, you know, that's probably the one area I don't want to focus, right? Because I just didn't have experience. And, and I learned so much, um, you know, at that point in time, you know, from Steve. Uh, and then John came in and John just took it to a, a totally different level. Um, both in terms of the maturity of how we execute that process, but more importantly, doing it in scale globally, right? And looking at kind of, you know, how we uh, scale the organization globally. Uh, if you look at the level of talent that John was bringing in, you know, as he came on board, and I had the opportunity actually to work for John, um, you know, particularly, you know, as part of my VP uh, of customer success role. Um, but just, you know, in my various roles, you know, I was always in, in the room you know, as part of the teams, we're implementing force management, um, you know, getting, you know, all the training and enablement sessions, uh, because we really looked at uh, not only, you know, how do we train the sales reps, but we also looked at, you know, how do we enable all of those folks that were supporting the sales reps? And ultimately, there's also a handoff that happens from pre to post, you know, you know, at different points in time, regardless of what role I was in, you know, I was in the room seeing the impact that he could have benefiting from the training and then incorporating everything that I learned, not only into how we sell, but also into sort of my practice areas as well. Fantastic. And in terms of for our viewers, uh, maybe for individuals um, really wanting to be successful in startups who are progressing their career or um, individuals who like a varied role, what, what do you think made you so adaptable to, to such a variety of positions? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, you know, you always look for in, in any position is, you know, the raw talent that, you know, someone brings to the table, right? I always think about in the software world, like three types of skills. I think of some skills, I think about their job skills, like their ability to, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, do sales engineering or, you know, be a sales rep or customer success. And then I think of like technical, you know, skills. And I think a lot of the soft skills are very adaptable right two different you know roles so for example like you know i really enjoy problem solving right and so that's a skill that can be applied to you know all of those domain areas uh and so i think you know for for folks as their career is like developing i think you know being comfortable taking risks maybe go outside their comfort zone but also you know understanding what competencies that they bring to the table and how they can apply those to different roles because it, and at the end of the day, what I found in you know my career is that diversity of experience, right? Diversity of experience is huge uh, because you know every role that I go to, I'm even better because of the diverse experience that I've had and the perspective that I can bring you know to those roles. 
yeah so having seen things from their side or that that part of the business's side it's kind of easier to integrate in your opinion yeah that's right i mean you know i mean if i think about my role in professional services oftentimes i'm trying to motivate salespeople to sell professional services well then you turn it around a little bit and you're in sales and you're trying to get the deal done and you have the professional services team coming you know say you need to get this professional services in the deal and yeah you know, you know one of the things you know i learned you know from from you know steve and john is right time kills all deals right so you see it from a completely different lens but ultimately yeah. it's like how does it all come together so that you everyone accomplishes their objectives and, and you do it in a, a positive way so obviously the playbook was building momentum in the sense that obviously john and steve are, are now really imposing these methodologies on you how how profound was that teaching on you personally sure yeah so i think it's um so it was significantly profound because you know i think if i look at it through a couple of different lens so one is i was always very uh um you know like a process oriented person from earlier in my career uh but what i learned you know with with john is you know the importance of like a sales process and and really kind of it brought you know sort of clarity you know to that uh, i was always a methodical person in terms of how i think about you know tackling problems managing my teams right and so you know applying things like medpick as it relates to you know forecasting as an example um and then also just learning you know some of the intricacies uh you know i think and this has come up in other you know podcasts as well as it's one thing to sort of read a book uh, or an article on you know some of these methodologies. I mean, I literally have the laminated sales process from every job that I've ever had. Uh, I actually have it in. I have a suitcase that is the that was a gift from Morgan Stanley on our IPO, and in that suitcase is literally a laminated copy of all the sales processes for all the orgs I've worked, you know, through. And and I think it's one thing to look at that and read it, but it's another thing to experience it. And really learn how to apply it, right? You don't learn how to drive a car by reading a manual, right? You know, you learn how to drive a car by hours of experience and making mistakes. And um, and I think you know the experience of working with those leaders, you know, was was super profound. My ability to not only apply that, but also refine my craft. As over time, I've gotten into customer success and I've started to expand that process, look beyond, you know, the uh, the pre-sale cycle and apply that, you know, sort of post-sale and um, and apply some of those concepts, you know, for the entire customer lifecycle. That's been huge. Was there a defined customer success function in Blade Logic, or was it more of a yeah, a no, I, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think uh, so. Generally, no. Um, you know, at the time, Blade Logic is you know it's a perpetual software business, right? So you got your traditional perpetual software and maintenance. Uh, we took the traditional transactional approach to how we served our customer, meaning you had, you know, project-based professional services. Uh, you had, you know, ticket-driven support activities. Uh, and so, you know, the only point in time where there was an element of customer success was when Dave taught me on the shoulder and said, you know, basically, you know, the whole company is at your disposal. Like, you know, go make sure we don't lose any customers and, and go make sure, you know, we, we win and make successful. A large financial services client, right? But that wasn't an investment in customer success. That was an investment in a person and, and more of a company-wide initiative. Um, and so I think customer success, you know, I, I use the term, it's both a noun and a verb, right? It's a culture, right? A company can be 
you know, uh, maniacally focused on the success of their customers across every organization. And that's sort of the verb. And then there's the noun, which is like an organization. And I think what, what you've seen since Blade Logic is the rise of a lot of subscription and SaaS based companies. Um, and ultimately, in a subscription SaaS based company, customer success is one of the lifebloods of the business. Uh, you know, in fact, it's one of the organizations that could have the biggest impact on the success of um, a recurring revenue business. Uh, and a lot of the early SaaS companies, you know, Salesforce being the, the most notable one that's, you know, documented, really found that the absence of a customer success function can actually uh, really kill the company's growth. Yeah. Yeah, so this is obviously a, a very, very kind of uh, a key topic and, and something which is obviously very dear, dear to you. And, and we are going to talk quite a lot about, you know, a lot of the work that you have done, um, you know, within this space and, and how you've really started to adapt much of that early best practice from Blade Logic in your roles and how that's kind of trickled through. Uh, th this would be probably a really good segue into, um, you know, post IPO at Blade Logic going into BMC because again we see a further um, kind of a, a further change in your role and focus at BMC. So can you just kind of tell us, um, you know, what that acquisition was like and, you know, what your new role was within BMC as part of that acquisition? Sure. Yeah, it was an interesting acquisition, right? Because you have this small company, Blade Logic, being acquired by this large company, you know, kind of BMC. Um, you know, I think at the time, BMC was, you know, directionally about, you know, $2 billion, uh, in, you know, annual revenue. So significantly larger than... Uh, you know, what Blade Logic was at that point in time. But at the same token, what you saw is, you know, Blade Logic became the cornerstone of, uh, you know, VMware's, um, you know, service automation capability at the time. But more importantly, I think the bigger impact was the impact that um, the leadership of BMC had on, you know, the broader organization. So, um, you know, you saw, you know, David Acheria move into, you know, a role as the the president of uh, basically, you know, the equivalent of the distributed systems business as opposed to, you know, the mainframe business at that point in time, which was about half the company. So you saw, you know, John moving into a role uh, in terms of, you know, leading the sales organization. Uh, you saw a lot of the sales uh, leaders and reps getting really important positions in the BMC sales organization. Uh, and so, you know, I think particularly in that context, uh, you know, you saw sort of a shift in terms of, you know, how we went to markets uh, and ultimately, you know, that really, you know, kind of played an important role in, in many respects transforming, you know, the company, right, As a, at that point in time in terms of, you know, particularly you know, how we were selling. And then I think, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, as I've got involved. I, as you mentioned, you know, I had a shift as well, right? So at that, at the point of acquisition, I was running support for, uh, you know, Blade Logic. So the obvious place for me to go was the, the BMC support organization. Uh, but also, you know, very quickly, you know, I stepped in. Uh, I think one of my peers uh, said to me, she's like, I can't believe how vocal you were in your first meeting with this team that you had sort of, you know, just met. And so, you know, I finished integrating Blade Logic, you know, a little bit, you know, Sort of faster than anyone expected and 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 i at that point in time was you know tapped on the shoulder um to lead bmc's premier support organization which basically you know man i went from focusing on you know just 
my blade logic and extended automation portfolio to actually focusing on you know BMC's largest, most strategic accounts across all the portfolios, right? So all the different product areas, which at the time, you know, BMC's big product area was, you know, a product called Remedy uh, and Atrium, uh, which is a CMD, CMDB product. And so, you know, I was now focusing across the entire portfolio uh, of products, you know, at that point in time, and was able to have an impact from a support perspective, you know, again, beyond just, uh, you know, my experience at Bladebogic. Sure. And how, how was that transition from obviously having a varied role, but more with a, a point solution at, or a point product to then having a much wider set of products? Was it, again, a learning curve or was it just a case of, of doing things differently? Yeah, well, so there was, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I think there was a lot of foundational things that, you know, I had uh, sort of in my tool bag, so to speak, as it relates to, you know, being very like process centric, you know, I've said support domain experience, but not at that level of scale. Um, you know, I did learn uh, a lot from as part of my blade logic experience in terms of, you know, managing enterprise customer, uh, which I was able to kind of tap into. You know, there were there were obviously new elements as well. Uh, I mean, the amount of revenue that uh, we drove uh, both in premier support fees as well as the maintenance fees for my premier support business you know, was, you know, rivaled the amount of revenue that Blade Logic had at the time of acquisition, right? So I think, you know, when you look at, you know, the fact that, you know, we had this four fee premium support offering um, that, you know, mining is for that plus the maintenance that I was accountable for, you know, was in, you know, over a hundred million, uh, you know, in revenue, um, you know, that was sort of a new experience, you know, for me. Uh, so, you know, it was a little bit of both. I was able to leverage a lot of my experience, but at the same token, you know, there was sort of new skills that I needed to develop as well. And I also had to adjust from being working in a startup environment to working in, you know, a 6,000 person, you know, software company, which is, you know, it's, a, it's a, you know, a, a large company, but, you know, significantly larger than you know, like a Blade Logic, um, but maybe not as large as, you know, where I am today, like VMware. Yeah. So, uh, so one of your playbook elements, um, Phil, is the customer engagement model. Was it at BMC when you really started to kind of roll this kind of playbook out and, and, and kind of develop your whole mindset around this? Yeah, I think that so that's evolved in like two different ways. I think uh, there's always been this discussion of like, you know, you have a sales process and then like, how do you hand the customer off to the post sales process? And so in a lot of respects, you know, keeping it simple, people historically have thought about it as sort of, you know, two different journeys for the customer, the pre-sales and the post-sale. And, and that concept sort of still exists. Uh, but I think, you know, where the concept of the customer engagement model is sort of evolved in my mind, you'll really start to take hold as I started to get into Enternock and then and really cemented itself uh, when I joined Cloud Health. Um, and I think a primary driver of that is, you know, the fact that, you know, Cloud Health is, was really, you know, it was 100%, you know, SaaS subscription. Um, and so you sort of see this shift where in a perpetual license world, the, the majority of the value you actually get from the customer happens on the initial sale, right? So, uh, you know, two things are taking place. One, they're making this capital investment in a perpetual license. Uh, and then also, you know, when they look at the, the amount of, investment they're making in the license they're often more apt to make 
a more significant investment in things like professional services and implementation and other things uh, you know, associated with you know, their, their success, right? Because they're making oftentimes a multi-year commitment at that point in time. Even if they're only thinking about like 12 months, oftentimes you know, when, you, when you buy a perpetual license, you're buying the license in perpetuity, right? When you look at a SaaS business, Right, you start to see um, customers that are more interested in try and buy and on the sales side of things. You see concepts like land and expand, right? We're gonna land a smaller deal initially. Um, and you, if you just look at the economics of the SaaS business, right? Rather than having you know this big upfront perpetual purchase and then this small mated stream, you sort of have this continuous subscription stream, which over time, uh, you know, is more revenue for your company, right? I mean, there's a reason why SaaS companies have a higher valuation than you know, traditional perpetual based software companies. And so, you know, understanding that dynamic of, you know, subscription and land and expand, uh, and also the fact that the customer is not making as large of an investment in implementing the technology, right? They don't have any knowledge in, you know, because it's in the, oftentimes it's in the cloud, right? If it's a SaaS product, it's in the cloud. Uh, and so oftentimes they're not making the, as much initial upfront investment. And so what ends up happening is, is you, you actually move from a mode of, you know, the majority of your selling happening during that pre-sale stage to a mode where you're constantly uh, in a selling mode. Um, and so, you know, we've implemented uh, a model, a customer engagement model that's based on this concept called layer, L-A-E-R, which is, you know, you got to land the customer. You've got to get them to adopt the technology. Once they're adopting the technology, that's when you swoop in and look at expansion, whether that's expanding from an upsell perspective in terms of like, you know, getting more units of consumption, or that's expansion from a cross-sell perspective, what other products can I sell? And then also renewals uh, is, you know, a, a, another critical aspect of the business and also, you know, just retention in general, you know, how do you retain the customer? Um, and, and, you know, based on the company, a lot of those expansion and retention activities, those are commercial sales activities, which, you know, need kind of equal amounts of rigor as you would have uh, in a traditional sales process. Mm. That's really interesting. And how, how do you think those changes to, to both the industry and the way technology companies have responded in terms of being in that perpetual sales mode, as you say, do, do you think that has really changed the standards of the industry? Do you think that's had a positive effect overall? Or? Yeah, I think long term, it's going to have a positive impact in two respects. I think, um, you know, when you look at it through the lens of, uh, you know, shareholders, right, I and mean, SaaS subscription business, over time, customers end up spending more money on the software. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at it through the lens of a customer, the customer has a lot more flexibility and there's more of a focus on delivering business outcomes for the customer. So you know yeah. the customer is paying a little bit more, they're actually getting a lot more. Right, because they now have flexibility. Um, you know, they've sort of shifted from this, you know, capex to opex, you know, sort of model. They've got the ability to kind of turn things on and off. Um, and really, a lot of the there's a lot more power that shifts to the customers. So even though they're paying a little bit more money, they're actually, you know, they've got more flexibility, they've got more control, uh, and there's a lot more focus on the, you know, the outcome. Uh, and when you look at it from an employee perspective, what ends up happening is you know, this whole new category of roles that never existed before, like customer success managers, is, you know, one of the, you know, one of the biggest, um, you know, roles on LinkedIn right now that people are looking for. And that yeah. category of roles didn't exist, you know, really 10 years ago, right? You know, when I was back at Blade Logic, there was, you, you, no one had a role of a customer success manager, right? You know, there were very few, if any, 
customer success. So there's this whole category of roles that mm-hmm. exists all new, right? It's it's you know it's, mm-hmm. it's complementary to the traditional post sales roles like you know consulting and professional services and support. Um, so overall, I mean, it's you know I think it has a positive effect you know for everyone involved. Sure. So I suppose in terms of these um, these principles that you've kind of just taken us through the the, the layer um, kind of process that you, you you follow, how have you started to then in, implement the the medic style qualification process within that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great question. So um, you know, so first, uh, you know, I obviously you know uh, at Blade Logic. You know, have experience. You know, uh, you know, with with medic or med pick. You know, depending on which flavor, <laughs> which flavor, or which sales leader you're working with. Um, and so, you know, that was obviously very embedded in kind of how we did things from a sales perspective. You know, as things evolve, uh, you know, that methodology was also adopted with some of the subsequent companies that I, you know, I worked at. So, um, you know, when I was at at Enternock, actually, uh, John McMahon helped. You know, place me at Enternock. He was advising them. You know, at the time. Um, the sales leader there, we were building a software business, you know, um, you know, they were learning about software sales and we implemented it there. Um, you know, certainly we had it at BMC, but, you know, at, at Cloud Health, what I started to do, um, so first, you know, I, my sales leader at Cloud Health also used, um, you know, his variation of, uh, you know, MedPick. But what I started to look at is I started to look at kind of, you know, in the context of SaaS and the context of post-sales, how can I apply these concepts, um, you know, as it relates to kind of inspecting my forecast, right? So I have, you know, today, um, I continue, even though I have a new role at VMware, I continue to be accountable for, um, you know, both the majority of the, you know, the retention of, you know, the recurring revenue business, which is, you know, over 100 million in recurring revenue. I continue to be responsible for, you know, the majority of the expansion that we drive, you know, the renewals of the contracts. And so I need a way to forecast all of those things. And so what I looked at is I looked at, okay, how can I apply these concepts in a customer success, you know, world? Um, you know, so for example, you know, we're still transacting, right? I use, I use you know, I use MedPick actually, um, because as part of, for example, VMware, one of the things that we need to do is every time we renew a cloud health transaction, I need to, um, migrate it to VMware legal terms, right? Um, and new things like data protection agreements have emerged in a cloud-based world. So I really need to understand the paper process, right? And, and understand where we are, if I'm gonna forecast accurately, I need to understand where we are in the paper process as we migrate to legal terms of service or we get a data protection agreement in place. Uh, the concept of a champion, right? So that's not a concept, just a pre-sales concept. At the end of the day, you know, um, you know, for me, in a post-sales world, the value of a champion is, you know, still having someone who's going to sell on your behalf when you're not in the room. Well, to drive adoption of a technology solution, we still need that selling to happen post-sales. Um, and we also have conversations about, well, what happens if we lose our champion, right? I mean, in the technology world, the IT world, people are taking jobs every two to three years, right? So we're constantly in this mode of developing champions. We're always asking who's the economic buyer ultimately, you know, who makes the decision? Have you met with them? How often are you meeting with them? Now, what we're also doing though, is we're applying in the customer success world um, and using tools like, you know, Gainsight, we're also applying, um, using data 
to also inspect things um, and, and create workflows around things like, well, you haven't met with the economic buyer recently, right? So every executive business review, we know one of my uh, one of my team members, you know, we know when they meet with the economic buyer, their champion, we know, you know, how often they meet. Uh, we know if the LinkedIn profile, that person changes, we know that we need to go build a new champion, right? So we're using data now to actually even reinforce some of these concepts um, and proactively identify risk in the business uh, through the use of things like, you know, health scores and, uh, and, you know, calls to action. And so we've really taken this, you know, this one forecast methodology concept and started to think about how we can integrate it in other ways to ultimately help deliver, you know, the business results as it relates to, you know, growing our customer base. So, so data-driven operations is, an, again, another element of your, your playbook, uh, which is what you're referring to there. Could you just tell us a little bit more about, you know, some of the, uh, some of the elements of that? Sure. Yeah, so you can look at, um, you can look at your business, you know, uh, from a metrics perspective in, in two respects. So if you think of the customer engagement model, starting all the way back through like, you know, marketing and sales, and then getting into, you know, customer success, you got to onboard the customer, you got to drive adoption, you know, eventually you get expansion retention. Uh, there are different metrics along the way, right? There are leading indicators, there are trailing indicators, right? So, you know, if you take, for example, in the sales process, you know, a leading indicator might be the number of trials in your trial win rate, right? Um, you know, there's trailing indicators like in the customer success world, net retention is a big KPI that we use, which is, you know, the value uh, of the business that the value of the customer business at the beginning of the period and the end of the period, right? Did you grow your installment? Um, and then there's also productivity metrics, right? So, you know, obviously on the sales side of things, a lot of people talk about, you know, sales productivity, but you can look at each stage and you can look at the roles that are involved in that stage of the of the customer engagement model, and you can look at how do you measure productivity, right? And so there's sort of the classic, you know, metrics, you know, it's like sales productivity, like utilization and professional services. Uh, but there's other metrics, you know, in a, in a sort of a, a new world with customer success, when you look at, you know, what's the, the amount of recurring revenue that a particular customer success manager is actually, you know, kind of managing as an example. Right. Um, or, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, the number of customers. Right. But, but ultimately, you know, you figure out the productivity metric that you know, works for you. So that's one aspect of, you know, sort of, um, you know, data driven operations. Right. The second aspect is this concept of um, like health score. And so in that sense, what we could do is so, you know, there's sort of different lens you can apply to a health score. There's a customer centric lens which is like what metrics are indicative of a healthy customer. And oftentimes people will share those. Um, so that's kind of one approach and that's the approach, you know, we're using it at VMware right now. And ultimately those metrics are grounded in two concepts. They're grounded in the concept of, you know, outcome is the customer actually getting the business outcome they expect, um, you know, an experience, right? So an example of uh, outcome is, uh, you know, our customers purchase Pod Health um, oftentimes to, to save money. So we can actually look at our customers and we can look at the total amount of money they're spending on cloud and we can look at, you know, the number of units, whether that's compute or storage or network, and we can look at their cost per instance hour and see if that number is going up or down. And that's directly correlated with their business outcome. And so, so that's an example of a metric we might look at that's customer centric. Um, you know, other things are like NPS, right, you know, as well. Those are customer centric metrics. Some of them are outcomes, some of them are experience. 
you know, you can also look at it from an internal perspective. And, and this is really kind of where we lean more on the cloud health, uh, you know, businesses. We try to predict a customer's propensity to expand. And we try to predict whether a customer is at risk of churning. And we've used, you know, basically data science to figure out the metrics that are most strongly correlated with their likelihood to uh, either churn, right, cancel their contract and leave, or their likelihood, you know, to expand. You know, so for example, like we may get a positive net promoter score, which is a, a great is a great thing, but it's not tightly correlated with their likelihood to stay with us, right? So we have lots of times, you know. Um, I'll have, you know, one of our champions give us a really positive net promoter score. Um, but, but at the end of the day, they cancel the contract. You know, why? They just had a, you know, reorganization and a new executive came in and he's worked with, you know, a prior, you know, one of our competitors in the past, right? You know, so it's not necessarily a correlation. On the flip side of that, if your executive sponsor gives you a negative net promoter score, like there's a high likelihood <laughs> that they're going to, you know, churn if the person that ultimately makes the decision isn't saying good things about you. Right. So that's just kind of like one example. And we've got about 25 metrics that, you know, we tend to kind of focus on uh, things like contract length, um, things like, you know, are we seeing kind of a continual investment in our technology? Uh, adoption is obviously huge, right? In a SaaS world, you can, you know, you know what features people are using, you know, you know what consumption, you know, is happening. Um, and we dabbled in actually some of that, you know, actually even as early as, you know, Blade Logic where we could we actually could correlate um, based on a customer at the time they had to redeem a license key every time they deployed blade logic we could monitor their license key trends and we could actually and we, we did this at blade logic we could actually look at whether they were using license keys and continually you know getting new license keys was directly correlated as to whether they were going to continue to use the software and so they're just examples more internally focused where how you can use metrics to predict you know, risk in the business and, and also where your expansion opportunities are. So it's obviously a lot of that focus is very much around um, you as the vendor and the benefit, but actually this can also have a profound impact on the client. So, so what value did that mindset also bring to the, to, to the client side? Yeah. Well, so, you know, so first, like as we use like health scores at, at VMware, like that's really where we're focused right now is looking at it through the lens of the customer. And so, you know, I think what ends up happening is you almost as a software vendor end up holding yourself more accountable to sort of the value that you sold in the sales process, right? So, so if I think about kind of how we're operating now, so, you know, during the sales process, we set expectations of value, right? We then what we do, and a lot of that is captured either in the deliverables you put together as part of your sales process, right? So think of this as, you know, you've got a, a CFO ready presentation that you, you, you put in front of the customer with a business game. Um, and then you also have internal deliverables too, like an account plan, right? Where you map the organization and all the key stakeholders. So what we're working on is, you know, how do we take that um, and then, you know, work with the customer to create this thing called a success plan, which basically maps to how are they going to measure success? You know, we're then codifying that success plan um, in, in software. And then we are actually measuring through executive business reviews whether we're actually on track, you know, to deliver on that outcome. And we're putting governance in place so that if we're not on track, we can take action. And that accountability is a mutual accountability, right? At the end of the day, 
Um, you know, we could do everything right as it relates to our software and the customer can still not accomplish the outcome. But just the fact that the software vendor is uh, working in partnership with the customer through the life of their journey, right? Not on a tr transactional basis, like, you know, sort of, you know, traditional project-based professional services or, you know, ticket-driven support, but more, you know, really embedded, um, you know, with the customer over their journey. Um, with this focus on making sure they get the outcomes. I mean, that's really, you know, profound, right? Um, and that has a huge impact, you know, not only for the customer, but it also has an impact, uh, you know, for um, the company as well. Because at the end of the day, if you deliver that positive, you know, business outcome for the customer and they have a good experience, then they're more likely to continue to buy more from you um, as well. So, so do you provide them with some sort of scorecard quarterly or what, what, what do you provide your customers with? Um, yeah, so we do two things. So we have a scorecard, right? So we have, you know, a health scorecard. Uh, and ultimately, you know, that is then incorporated typically into like a standard executive business review uh, that we do. So we have a very prescriptive approach. Uh, we, I started this at Cloud Health. We have a very prescriptive approach for how we do executive business reviews. Um, in the case of the cloud health, we also do benchmarking, right? So we also give them visibility of how they're performing against others. Wow. Uh, which the customers find super valuable. I call that the, you know, that's the CXO moment, right? We go to do our executive business review. We bring up the benchmark. I've been in many meetings where the executive has paused the meeting, gone out, came back in, and now some top higher level executive is like, you got to see this, right? So there's sort of this. It's very much, you know, centered around the customer business value. Um, so whether it's a scorecard, but as I said, in the cloud health world, we do these benchmarks. We deliver that as part of the executive business review, um, you know, which is oftentimes, you know, a you know, 60 to 90 minute meeting. We have a very structured agenda. We do it on a cadence that we agree with the customer. You know, for your largest customers, it might be, you know, quarterly. If you do it three times a year, you're doing a pretty good job because you're, you know, you're dealing with, you know, economic buyers and their schedules. Um, but it basically creates sort of a foundation from a relationship perspective, but also from a governance perspective in terms of making sure, you know, you're always on track. And then the other thing it does is it, you know, creates a communication vehicle because the reality is, is that technology is changing so fast. Our customers are transforming at rapid rates and our customers' businesses are changing so fast that, you know, ultimately you also have to kind of make sure that you're always you know, keeping your eye on what success looks like at any point in time. Because the reality is, is more often than not, six months after you close the initial deal or six months after your last meeting, you know, something has changed. Yeah, that's so in terms of who that who received that scorecard, you kind of touched on it briefly there, but you kind of mentioned economic buyers. It, who, who is that? Is it just the economic buyers or how do you identify who should receive that information? Yeah, so what we try to do as part of the sales process is we try to identify who our executive sponsor is going to be. The executive sponsor sometimes is the economic buyer, oftentimes the executive sponsor is someone that is, you know, sort of designated or delegated by the economic buyer to make sure that the value is actually, you know, retrieved, uh, received. Um, sometimes the executive sponsor is our champion, sometimes, you know, they're not, right? They could just be someone in the, the organization who has, you know, a lot of influence. Um, and so, you know, in a perfect world, you know, what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're having, you know, we call, we call them executive business reviews. 
uh, because we have a we have a prescriptive approach to the business review, but it's not an executive business review if the executive sponsor's not there. Uh, most commonly, you would uh, you know you want your champion involved as well if they're the same person or you know someone else. You no, know, those are kind of like the two key roles. And then the other piece we always think about is well, how how are we making sure that the economic buyer knows about the value that we're delivering, and how are we communicating that value? Um, and sometimes that's just as simple as um, doing the work of preparing the executive business review presentation. Um, and then the other piece is, you know, also we've even with some of our customers, we've even done, we worked with the marketing organization to do case studies. It has a, you know, dual benefit, right? It has the benefit that you can use it for marketing purposes, you know, and drive more sales, but also has the benefit that the customer can use it to market internally. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, that drives goodwill, you know, that's, that's how people get promoted. Yeah, sure. So what happens if the priorities change within, within, within the economic buyer and the kind of senior exec? Yeah, and so you know, as you know, as we're engaging with the customer, you know, we need to look at how those priorities have changed, and then we need to think about okay, as a result of that, how would we respond, right? Um, you know, COVID is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Uh, so if you take COVID as an example, um, so so COVID was very interesting in two respects. So one, you know, we had a significant velocity of executive business reviews with our customers that were happening. COVID hits, and now everyone goes into kind of tactical, you know, sort of mode. Now, many of the companies that we work with uh, are companies that are, you know, growing really fast or transforming their businesses, um, and, and they're transforming them in the context of uh, the public cloud. And so, for a lot of companies, uh, what ended up happening is instead of focusing on growth, which is where their focus was. They all of a sudden with COVID saw that, you know, there was going to be impacts to their business, you know, so think about like a travel business, right, where people aren't flying as much. So some of our customers fall into that category. And so in, in those customer cases, now all of a sudden their priorities went from growth to um, basically how do they better, you know, manage their business from in terms of like costs and things like that and, and mitigating risks. So in a lot of cases, security, you know, was equal or more important. And so priorities changed, right? So whereas in the past, you know, maybe we would spend 20% of our time with a growth-oriented company talking about how are they optimizing their costs, now all of a sudden that flips to 80% of the time, right? And so we sort of, you know, adjust, you know, things. Um, you know, so that's, you know, one of the things. Um, you know, I think the other thing, you know, that, that changes too is things like being able to meet with customers face-to-face -face versus, you know, you know, delivering things, you know, digitally. And we've always been, you know, uh, you know, we have to support the largest customers and the smallest customers. So we have a strategy, you know, for doing everything we talked about, you know, efficiently for the smallest customers all the way through, you know, very high touch approach to the largest customers, but that changes things as well. Fantastic. I think that's such um, valuable in-depth insight really into the way the industry is going and, and how not just the customer success function is growing, but the, the way the, the industry is moving. Um, I guess as well as the, the, the process and the operational side, which is, is so vital, um, to scale the organization, obviously you need to, to bring in, and, and this is another element of your playbook, but recruit, retain, and, and develop the right talent. Um, in a relatively new um, role, such as customer success, how, how do you find that challenge? Are there certain priorities you look for? Or um, obviously, I'm sure you have hiring criteria as, as any medic playbook company will yeah yeah so 
so it's interesting, you know, when I meet a recruiter, you know, typically like an internal recruiter, but you know, if I, if I were to meet you guys in a different context, the first thing I usually tell my recruiter is I said, you're going to love me or you're going to hate me. <laughs> right. And, uh, and the reason I say that is because I think, you know, at the end of the day, you can have the best processes in the world. You can have the best systems in the world. You can have the best product in the world, but, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, you still need, you know, marketing people to market, salespeople to sell, right? You know, customer success, you know, a lot of it is about, you know, kind of the human interaction. We do a tons with technology, but then smart people have to figure out what we're going to automate, right? Like, so there's always at the end of the day, you know, there's some talent, you know, kind of behind the scenes. And so, you know, I put a huge priority on, uh, you know, basically the, the recruiting process. And what we focus on a lot is, um, you know, one, like what's the profile that we're going to look for in a candidate? And we get really into what are the specific competencies and, and behaviors we want to see um, out of our candidates. And at the end of the day, you know, we know there's certain things that we can teach, right? Um, you know, if I think back to like Blade Logic, when we were building up the sales engineering team, we didn't say go find sales engineers, you know, who sold, you know, Tivoli or Unicenter. No, we didn't do that. What we said is we said, well, who's our customer, right? Our customers are typically system administrators. Okay, great. So what do we need? Well, we need people who technically understand system administration and, and can technically, you know, get their heads around our software. But, but we also need soft skills, right? Like, you know, we need people that, you know, are competitive and we need people that, you know, um, you know, at the time, a lot of systems engineers, and even today, a lot of them are, you know, introverted. Well, no, we need people who are a bit more, out, you know, kind of like talking to customers, and and we need people that can build relationships. And so we kind of focus a bit more on those skills. And so yeah. we can teach them to do demos. We can teach them to do trials of our software, right? We can teach them the features and functions of Blade Logic. And so, in today's world, as I'm recruiting for customer success professionals, it's in such high demand. One. And two, it's kind of you know still early in its you know you know uh, progression, and it means different things, right? Some customer success professionals are commercially oriented because they do renewals and expansions. Some customer success professionals are technically oriented because they do onboarding and adoption. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, we end up getting back to like, well, what skills do they need that are the skills that we can't train? And let's go, you know, recruit for that, right? And that's you know things like problem solving. Right. You know, things like, you know, um, good communication skills. Right. Um, things like, you know, how do they handle adversity? Right. Are they flexible and adaptable to change? Right. Mm -hmm. So we recruit for those things. Um, and then we have a very structured interview process where it's everyone knows at every stage what their goal in the interview process is to ultimately drive, you know, the, the best level of talent. So this sort of the recruiting aspect There's obviously the professional development aspect. Right. Then what do you do when they show up? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then that's an important aspect of things as well. And so I apply this sort of 70, 20, 10 sort of approach, you know, 10% of it is have them read a book, have them go to a class, 20% of it's like coaching and the other 70% is they just got to go out and get real world experience, you know, and supporting them through that. Um, and then the other part is organizational design, you know, as well, like how are we designing the organization in a way that, you know, is going to, you know, set the individuals up for success and also deliver the best experience for our customers. Mm. Fantastic. And for those people um, already with a curiosity for, for customer success or, or um, who've thought about entering the customer success industry already, 
obviously, as, as we know, it's really important for people to play to their strengths. What, what should they be looking out for? Should, do they need a baseline always of, of technical knowledge or do you think it's more that, that nature of the person? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a couple of things. So one is, you know, they need to have a bit of a passion for the thing that they're driving customer success for, right? Yeah. And that's not always obvious either. I mean, one of the most successful customer success uh, individuals, uh, you know, she's a director now, but she started as an individual contributor. Um, yeah. She was an FP&A analyst, right? But one of the, the, the personas that, you know, for Cloud Health that we, we deal with is FP&A, right? So, you know, she probably didn't know it at the time, um, you know, so, but there was, you know, she had some interest in, you know, that area and eventually that helped her flourish, you know, kind of over time. Um, so I think there's, you know, having an interest in the domain, I think is important because if you have an interest in it, you're going to invest the time to learn. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I think it just comes down to then just, you know, the, some of the, the scoff skills and drive, you know, that the individual has to, to become an expert, you know, at that, you know, at that profession. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I think that's sort of equally important. I mean, the reality is that, I mean, every day new technologies are, you know, being introduced. There's, you know, a new service that shows up in the AWS catalog. There's a new, you know, app or a new, you know, uh, a new software vendor that's out there. Um, you know, no one's going to know all of the software than, you know, itself. It's just they've got to be smart enough to learn. Mm. Fantastic. And in terms of the, the kind of the future of customer success, if you like, um, do you see this becoming even more important than than the new business sales side? Do you, do you see the industry changing further as to the distance it's already come? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say any is like, anything is like more important versus less important. I mean, I think, you know, the way I think about things is, you know, from a customer engagement model perspective, at different stages in the customer journey, there are different roles that need to kind of rise up, right? So that starts with marketing. Right. You know, so marketing has this sort of a critical role early on as it relates to, you know, driving leads. Right. Yeah. And then it, you know, it shifts to, you know, the sellers. Right. And, and sales engineering to make sure that, you know, we can get the initial land, whether that's a large deal. Right. Or a land and expand opportunity. Then it shifts to, you know, the customer success teams, you know, and that includes you know, roles like customer success managers, but also, you know, support and professional services, you know, and I have luxury managing kind of all of those, you know, sort of today, the responsibility shifts, but every one of those has a different role, right? The professional services team, they have their role, the support team, they have their role. Um, and, and then maybe on the expansion side of things, maybe that expansion is driven by the customer success team, maybe that expansion is driven by the original sellers, um, you know, so, you know, there are different models that companies use for, you know, expansion. Then you have kind of the, the renewal, right? If you do everything right up front, you know, some people say the renewal is a foregone conclusion. I actually think the renewal is an opportunity for expansion, right? Every renewal is an opportunity for expansion, um, you know, but also, you know, a large percentage of my business, we have with smaller customers, we have auto renewals, right? So if you do everything right up front, you know, the renewal takes care of itself, right? So everyone has a role um, and ultimately for a recurring revenue business, you know, that you start out the beginning of every period, you start out with a book of business, right? So, you know, at the beginning of the period, you might have a hundred million in recurring revenue, right? The customer success team, you know, has two jobs. One is to minimize the amount of churn, right? And so, you know, if you have 20% churn, that's 20 million in recurring revenue that the new sales business has to go find, right? So you might have 20 reps that are just offsetting the churn, 
right? Um, and so you want to obviously minimize that, right? You want to get that number, you know, down 10% or below. That's sort of, you know, the first thing. And then the second piece is the expansion element. Because, you know, what we found, you know, at Cloud Health, for example, is, you know, over 50% uh, of our business was actually just being driven by existing customers. Wow. And so the customer success team, regardless of who does the expansion, the customer success team is accountable for making sure, you know, what I call making sure the customer is always in the buying mode. Right. Um, you know, and so so there's sort of that element as well. It, so, you know, the more you take care of your customers, you minimize the churn, you maximize the expansion. And then when that's working in conjunction with the new business, you know, uh, you know, when that those things are working in conjunction, that's when you see the maximum amount of growth. But you also see the best economics as it relates to your cost of sale. You know, as you think about things like the cost of expansion, the cost of renewals, you know, as well as the cost of you know, new business. Mm. Right. So I just at this point want to just go through kind of chronologically just to help our, our, our viewers and our listeners understand your kind of trajectory, uh, because we've obviously gone, we've traveled from BMC all the way through to kind of the present day. So um, obviously, BMC, you were uh, director of premium customer support May 2008 to April 2012. You were then made area vice president of professional services, which saw you through to kind of March 2014. Uh, at which point you joined Enanoc. You mentioned earlier that obviously John McMahon was quite instrumental in, in kind of facilitating that where you joined as the VP for global services and customer success. Um, and after a very successful stint there, which was approximately kind of three years, uh, you made your way to cloud health technologies um, as the VP of customer success. And, and, and you've obviously stayed through the acquisition of, of VMware. Um, now, I, I suppose framing that, VMware is an organization which isn't a thoroughbred medic kind of John McMahon force management company. They obviously do implement a lot of that. But from a personal perspective, how we've heard many um, sales engineers or professional services individuals that just can't thrive in an environment which isn't completely intertwined with that thoroughbred medic environment. But how have you survived and how have you thrived in that environment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, a couple of things. So one is, uh, you know, first, you know, you can't assume that just because you're, you know, small or an individual, you can't have a big impact, right? So, uh, you know, we, we saw that with, you know, Blade Logic being acquired by BMC, right? Where, you know, a small number of individuals had a big impact on a much larger company. Um, you know, similarly, you know, when Cloud Health was acquired by VMware, um, Cloud Health brought things to the table that were not part of, you know, VMware's DNA. Um, you know, so, you know, uh, first public cloud knowledge and experience, right? You know, when you think of VMware, you think of the opposite of the public cloud, right? Uh, the other thing is SaaS, right? You know, VMware, a lot of the, the you know, revenue is, is, you know, historically has been uh, significantly like perpetual maintenance sort of model. Right. Um, so that's those are skills and experience, right? As well as customer success. That's another thing that you know VMware, um, you know, had multiple you know starts and stops as it relates to customer success. So if I think of just my skills as it relates to public cloud, as it relates to um, SaaS, as it relates to customer success, as well as all the foundational skills you know that I that I have, like I just think about like. You know, uh, I call it punching above your weight class, right? You know, so just because you're an individual or a small company, 
you can have a profound impact because at VMware, VMware is you know working on this transformation to shifting more and more revenue to subscription and SaaS. And the people that are the best at that are part of this small little acquisition called Cloud Health. And so much like Blade Logic had an influence on uh, BMC, like we're trying, you know, we're trying to do sort of you know the same thing. And and at times that goes really well, and at other times, you know, as you highlight, I mean, that can be frustrating, right? Because I think you know, um, I you know, I've got to learn how the sales organization operates, and I've got to ask myself, are they operating in a way that's going to get us, you know, to sort of you know where we want to go? Um, and sometimes organizations are open to change and change quickly, and other times organizations, you know, move slowly. Um, and so the thing I look at is, is you know, that that pace of change, right? You know, as we bring in this these new skill sets, is the organization investing in the change that's required to take advantage of these skill sets or competencies? Um, and you know, and as long as positive things are happening, you know, it's motivating, right? Mm -hmm. Right, so your, your current role now, you've obviously moved into the global head of customer success 360. So, so what is your mission right now in, in the role that you're in? Yeah, so uh, really the big thing we're focusing on right now is as, as VMware shifts uh, from being a perpetual business to you know, more and more of a subscription in SaaS business, how does our engagement model with the customers change? Uh, around the customer, you know, journey in you know a, a subscription in SaaS world, um, and a, a, a big underpinning of that, in addition to the journey itself and the engagement model itself and the changes that need to happen there, is also um, you know having a mature customer success function, right? And then very specifically, you know, uh, where I'm focused is as it relates to um, you know two things. One is uh, how we deliver customer success for our largest and most strategic customers. And then two, um, how do you build an economic model where you can make investments in customer success, um, but at the same token, you can do it in a way that fits within, you know, sort of a profitability profile that, you know, you're trying to drive. Uh, and one of the things we did early on at Cloud Health was, uh, you know, really, from the first month that I started, I said, you know, we're going to charge for customer success. You know, why? Because the other vendors in the space that we're in, they charge. And we were able to very quickly go from having, you know, zero attach rate, zero customer success revenue up through, you know, the majority of the time, the customer funding customer success. And so, it, so at VMware, we're also looking at that as well. Um, you know, is there a way to get the customers to fund, you know, these customer success investments? Um, and there's a lot of examples, you know, in the industry both in kind of the, the IT infrastructure space where we play, as well as, you know, in, in other industries, large SaaS companies, you know, where customers uh, do pay for customer success. So, you know, it's a combination of how we serve, you know, these large enterprise customers, but also do it in a way that, you know, kind of meets our, our profitability model, but, also, but all of it with an emphasis on how we, you know, how we support this, this company-wide transformation uh, to subscription. Mm. Right. Fantastic. And you know, just to move back slightly in time, Phil, so at Enoch, um, where you were VP of Global Services and Customer Success from 2014 to 2017, um, what was it that drew you to customer success yourself? Was it the need within the business that you discovered this new area or um, what were the kind of key drivers for you? Yeah, sure. 
Um, so if we actually look at kind of how customer success is defined in, in a lot of organizations, I mean, some take a very narrow definition, which is you're going to manage the team of customer success managers, right? And they're going to do like onboarding uh, and adoption, or maybe they're going to do renewals, or maybe they're going to have a role in expansion, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that's sort of kind of one way to look at it. You know, I've kind of um, sort of been interested in, in broader roles. Uh, in the case of uh, Enternoc and, and actually even at Cloud Help, you know, we started to define customer success in this back in the sales process. And it starts with um, basically the sales engineering function. And so in a SaaS world, when you do a trial of software, that is actually the initial implementation. Like if, you know, if you do it right, your initial implementation of software actually happens pre-sales. So the customer in a perfect world is actually getting value out of your software when you close the initial deal. Yeah. And so customer success starts pre-sales. And so in the roles that I've had at, at Enternoc, at, at uh, Cloud Health, it started pre-sales. It then moved into all aspects post-sales of managing the customer. Mm -hmm. And that you know was inclusive of onboarding the customer, including the initial implementation, you know, the support aspects, driving proactively driving adoption, um, you know, looking at expansion and playing a significant role in expansion, as well as playing a significant role, you know, commercial role in uh, both expansion and, and renewals. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've looked at it more broadly and, and the, what's, what draw me to that was the fact that I had experience running sales engineering, the fact that I experienced running professional services, the fact that I experienced running, you know, support, um, the fact that I experienced doing premium, you know, offers, premium, more proactive services. Um, and then also kind of just a, a mindset to think about, you know, we, we talk about the engagement model in the context, you can think of it in the context of a process, but you can also think of it in the context of segmentation as well. And for me, that's like two things. It's direct versus channel. And then it's large customers, you know, versus medium-sized customers versus small customers. Uh, and I've also, you know, I've had experience, you know, on both sides, you know, both on the direct side as well as the channel side. Um, you know, I've had experience working, you know, with outsourcers both earlier in my career working for an outsourcer as well as, you know, kind of later in my career. Um, and so it really, had, you know, for me, it was kind of bringing all this stuff together under one remit um, and then applying just, you know, all the operational discipline that I, you know, learned over the years, um, you know, into having a positive business outcome. Uh, you know, for the companies that I work with. Sure. So I, I do want to ask you about diversity, um, Phil, because customer success in general seems to be a very good opportunity to expand, um, you know, with diversity. Kind of just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can look at diversity in like two respects. There's diversity of experience, which is something that, you know, I've really benefited from in my career. And then you can look at diversity in terms of, you know, diversity of, you know, thought, right? So, um, you know, and you can look at that through different lens, like at VMware right now, you know, there's a big focus on underrepresented minorities and, you know, sort of the, the male-female balance, right? You know, think about that through a software company where certain organizations you know, tend to be very like male dominated and, and, and others. And, um, and, you know, and there's lots of aspects. That's just one simple way to think of diversity. But obviously, you know, when you think of diversity of thought, um, you know, there's lots of different aspects that, you know, you can consider. And so, you know, that is an important thing uh, that we try to focus on 
um, for a couple of different reasons. One is our customers are diverse, right? I think that's you know an important thing that you know we think about. Um, two, what I've what I've learned is I've tried to balance sort of um, you know sort of a, there's a lot of great things I learned in my career. Um, you know, a lot of it coming out of you know Blade Logic in terms of you know how I've seen things operate. But at the same token, I value getting other people's sort of perspectives. And what I try to do is sort of take the best of all of those things, right? So, you know, the take all the best things that, you know, came from like Blade Logic and, and, and some of those things obviously came from PTC. Take those best things, discard some of the things that, you know, maybe aren't don't provide the best experience for the customer or for the employees, discard those things, then replace those with, you know, other, you know, best thinkings and kind of pull it all together into, you know, one playbook that's not rooted in one particular company, one particular methodology, but kind of rooted in all that diversity. Um, and then the other thing too is, is, you know, as you look at, you know, uh, different roles, right, you know, you, you can benefit by having, you know, diverse experience because on the customer success side, we're, we're solving problems that, you know, 10 years ago, people weren't thinking about, right? So having kind of a bit of a uh, diverse team thinking about how we're going to solve those problems, because um, ultimately what we're doing is we're, we're defining the, much like PTC defined the sales playbook, we're defining the customer success playbook for the next generation, right? And so, you know, and so we've got, you know, diverse people, you know, from all over the world thinking about how are we going to solve this problem, right? How are we, I mean, you know, how are we going to do partner success, right? You know, very few people are doing that. So we're like paving new ground in those areas. And so, you know, that's where also diversity of thought, uh, I think, can be important as well, because it brings creativity and new ideas and different ways of thinking. Um, and at the end of the day, our customers are diverse. So, you know, we need to be thinking about it, not only through the lens of, you know, how do we get business done, but also how do we do it in a, a way that delivers a positive experience for our customers? Um, right. So I, I suppose in terms of kind of general advice that you'd give to our listeners, uh, what, what kind of advice would you, to those listening that are perhaps interested in customer success or kind of exploring a path similar to, to, to that of your career trajectory, what, what, what's the best advice you could give them? Yeah, I mean, I think for like, sort of like individuals, you know, I think, uh, you know, the advice I would give is, you know, I mean, you know, a couple of things. So one is, um, you know, I think, you know, customer success is, you know, I think a, a great area of opportunity, um, you know, particularly for folks who have, you know, experience in, um, you, know, you know, domains like sales engineering, you know, professional service, things like that. So, you know, don't be afraid to sort of take the leap. You've seen actually some of the, you know, some of the folks from Blade Logic have taken the leap and have started to get more involved and they branched out, right? You know, I think traditionally, you know, you saw a lot of people stay within sales engineering or maybe go move over to product management, but you tend to see kind of concentration. Some of them become sales reps, right? Uh, but I think there's this sort of this, this other area that in particularly in the context of, you know, subscription and SaaS businesses, um, you know, might be something, you know, I think worth, worth looking at um, because I think it is a huge opportunity and it's going to be a big area, you know, from a growth perspective. I think for like, you know, for business leaders and companies, um, you know, I think, you know, don't underestimate the impact a strong customer success organization can have uh, when done well. Um, and, and don't be afraid to invest a bit, you know, uh, in your customers, right? You know, the thing I always ask is for every dollar of, um, you know, bookings or revenue that we have, how much of that are we willing to invest back in the success of our customers? 
And if you're willing to make that investment, it's going to pay for itself, right? It's going to pay for itself through retention and expansion, um, you know, consumption, uh, you know, for a lot of businesses, that's critical. Like it's going to pay for itself. If done right, if invested well and then done right, and, you know, and that's, you know, financial investment, but also hiring the right people and, you know, getting the right people in those roles and investing in the right tools and systems, it's going to more than pay for itself. Mm. Right. And outside of customer success, Bill, in terms of um, individuals watching this who who are looking to to scale their career in, in different roles in, in technology companies, what, what are the kind of key attributes or drivers for you or, or areas of development you've focused on to, to scale your career and where you have? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the kind of the, there's sort of the core, you know, the core skills, right, um, around, you know, the things like problem solving and, and, you know, being able to work as part of a team, which also includes, you know, being able to be transparent and upfront, you know, with folks, like if you don't agree, I think those are all, I think, really important, you know, aspects. I think the other thing too, is just being, you know, not being afraid to take a chance, right? Um, you know, uh, being able to tolerate a little bit of risk, right? Um, I remember when I, uh, when I left Accenture, right? You know, I remember at the time I went to work at a startup company and had a, you know, conversation with my dad at the time, we basically said, when something like this, he's like, so let me get this straight. You have a really well-paying job that's pretty stable. Uh, you like what you're doing. Um, you, you know, you could literally stay at this company, you know, forever yeah. uh, and make lots of money. Um, but you're gonna leave, you're gonna quit to go work for this startup company where you're making less money. There's no clarity on your job, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um and you think that's the better thing to do for your career. <laughs> and uh, I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, sometimes you got to be willing to take a chance, right? Whether it's take a chance in a different role, take a chance at a different company, um, and also be willing to put in the time, right? I didn't, in the roles I was in, you know, I was always in them for 12 to 18 months, right? And some of the roles I've been in for years, right? I mean, I think to master customer success, that's an investment I need to make for, you know, years. It's not something I can learn in six months. It's not something I can learn in 12 months. So don't be afraid to take the chance. But at the same token, you know, you, the only way you can get experience is over time, right? Through experience, right? And so I think that's an important consideration as well. Right. So um, I suppose as a final question, we, we ask as part of the pre-sale series is what technology or area of innovation do you think is going to have the biggest impact on business in the next decade? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as I, I don't, this isn't a technology, but I think it's going to drive innovation. Uh, and it's really what's happening today, right? So if you think about the world we live in right now with COVID, right? And you think about, um, you know, the, the, the fact that we need to adapt in kind of like new ways. I think there is going to be a lot of innovation that comes out of that, you know, out of like necessity. Um, and, and so, and, and also I think there's going to be a lot of impact, positive impact and, you know, sort of, you know, negative impact. Um, you know, I think about, uh, like my nephew as an example. So he is a chef. Okay. So restaurants are, you know, shutting down, closing, laying people off. Right. So, so, you know, so what does he do? You know, he basically, you know, creates a service where it starts out as he's a chef from home. 
cooking for tons of families, you know, all over the community with literally like a Google sheet where people can put in their orders. Right. And now all of a sudden he's finding that he can, you know, hit so many more people in terms of like delivering his craft. He can do it, uh, deliver so many more meals to so many more people and make even more money. And, and, and by the way, now he's also replicating that concept to like other communities, right. Where he's personally hiring the chefs. Like, so that's an example of like the innovation that comes out of, you know, something like this. I think about, you know, my, uh, you know, I grew, I live in the Boston area, you know, as a kid, we had like, you know, snowstorms, right. Um, well, now education's being delivered remotely and my kids are, you know, my kids' schools are on, I think, the forefront of doing like the best job delivering virtual school, live, instructor-led, combined with, you know, digital. Um, there's no more concept of a snow day ever again, right? I mean, there was snow <laughs> in the forecast. They said, we're just going to do virtual school tomorrow, right? You know, but also when you think about now being able to take that quality education and you could deliver it to anywhere in the world. Right. Whether someone just has, you know, all they need is an Internet connection and, and a device. Mm. And someone in, you know, Uganda can get the same education as, you know, my son in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Right. Like, so there's like, you know, there's all this innovation that I think is going to be, you know, forced because companies are forced to accelerate their digital transformation and people are forced to think about, you know, different ways. And it, it's underpinned by a lot of technology shifts that have been happening. Right. The shift to the cloud. Right. You know, um, sort of network, you know, bandwidth and things, you know, like 5G and things like a lot of it's underpinned by a lot of the technology shifts that have been happening. Uh, but I think as you start to apply that in new ways, and I think, you know, uh, COVID is going to be a compelling factor um, in the, you know, in so many different areas, transformation of medicine, the transformation of, you know, cities. What does public transportation look like in a world where, you know, people are a bit skittish about, you know, being on the underground, uh, you know, sort of shoulder to shoulder, you know, with, with everyone, yeah. right? Like, I think it starts to transform everything and becomes a compelling event to drive more innovation, you know, on top of a lot of the, the technology shift that we've seen happening. Great, fantastic. Well, Phil, that was um, very, very, um, you know, very, very eloquently pertinent. Thank you so much. So I suppose this is a good time to really summarize what we've heard today, Phil. Um, and I think we've heard a story of someone, an individual that, is able to run towards lots of different challenges and be so useful almost as a kind of a utility player. And the reason why you're so effective in so many different positions, in my, in my opinion, is that, that, that everything you do is, a, is centered around understanding the importance of customer value. And whether or not you're doing a pre-sales role or doing a post-sales role or a customer success role, you're able to understand customer value and understanding how it comes together with, with, with sales and uh, the customer engagement. And, and this has enabled you to continue to grow and to evolve and to be able to, to be positioned by your senior execs to tackle very, very strategic challenges that need to be worked out. And it's by taking that mindset and obviously your ability to adapt um that you've obviously been able to continue to scale and this is the reason why at the moment you are you know really taking the fight to you know the next frontier which is customer success at one of the best technology companies in the world so phil i just want to take this moment to really thank you for taking the time to speak with us today it's been an absolute pleasure really really insightful lots of great insight and lots of depth 
And I'm, and I'm, I'm sure that our listeners and viewers have really taken lots from today. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Patrick. It's been you know great getting a chance to to know you, um, and I certainly you know encourage you know your viewership to, to check out you know, all the podcasts in the series. I mean, there's so much valuable information that you know you guys are helping you know, promote and get out there, and uh, so many playbooks. Uh, you know, I'm just you know honored to be a part of the experience. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. It's been fascinating. Thank you again for joining us. So to our listeners and to our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We hope you've enjoyed what you've seen and what you've heard. There's lots and lots of more information to be found on our blog page. So please do check out so muchsoap.com forward slash blog. Uh, there's lots more lined up in the series and lots more happening. So do stay tuned and we look forward to welcoming you soon in the future. Thank you very much.